I never, even as a kid, ever liked that ending to The Wizard of Oz, where after getting carried away by flying monkeys and killing a witch, all Dorothy has to do to get home to Kansas is tap her shoes together three times and repeat the words, there's no place like home. It was too easy, completely unbelievable. It'd be a better story if she never got home, if she was still out on the road, only now her dog is dead and she has amnesia. That'd be more realistic somehow. She wants more than anything to go home, but she can't, and she doesn't know why, and it just breaks your heart. Maybe a series for HBO someday. But now, for the next hour, this is Hearing Voices, the best of public radio, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. Today's show is called No Place Like Home. My name is Scott Carrier, and I was actually born in Kansas, but I don't call it home, and I don't particularly want to go back there. Sarah Val has similar feelings for Oklahoma. We were hopeful immigrants from small-town Oklahoma who set out for a better life in small-town Montana and became new people. Where else but America can an okra-eating, twang-talking, God-fearing good girl like me be given the opportunity to turn into the liquored-up, opinion-mongering heathen I am today? My twin sister and I were born Okies in Muskogee because that's where the nearest hospital was, but we lived in Braggs, a dusty little Muskogee County nowhere, home to a thousand people, four churches, one school, a couple of stores, and a much vilified bar called the Little Oklahoma. Our mother took us to Bragg's Pentecostal Church three times a week, where I got saved, got baptized, and prayed with her and the others in the ladies' prayer meeting for the little Oklahoma to be shut down. And I sang. Sang in church, sang at home, sang along with my transistor radio to the Tulsa country station. I sang for God because I knew God was listening. When I was six, I got a tape recorder for Christmas, and here's the first song I sang into it. I will be a helper at home, at church, at school. I will be a helper obeying Bible rules. When there's work for me to do, I'll do it happily. I will be a helper to everyone I see. I hate that song more than any other every time it pops into my head I shiver because it's a spooky reminder of the docile woman I might have become had I stayed in that town, in that church, where there are so many rules and so many eyes upon you. Not to mention the fact that God himself ran the biggest stake out of them all, and you knew that come judgment day, you'd account for every last slip your preacher and his minions had somehow missed. Small towns are always hotbeds of surveillance, but when you add fundamentalist religion to the mix, the things you can't do outnumber the things you can. Sex is bad, drinking's bad, smoking's bad, women standing up to their husbands is bad, questioning scripture is bad, not attending church is bad, cussing is pretty damn bad, and as my father would soon find out, moving away is really, really bad. If you ask him why we left Braggs and moved to Bozeman, and believe me, my mother's family has never stopped asking, he'll launch into this whole song and dance about his health. One of the main deals was my uh, <clears throat> asthma, health problems. No, Dad, you've been giving us the old health line for years. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, that was kind of... One of the reasons for leaving there. Yeah. And what was the real reason? Uh, the real reason I wanted out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, go somewhere that was a lot cooler. Mm-hmm. And. And any other reasons? Like uh, that? I mean, what specifically? The hunting's real good here. Dad, too. <laughs> you're not answering the question. Tell me what you hated about Oklahoma. Mainly, uh, kind of the heat in the summertime. My dad's being diplomatic. No matter how many times I reassured him that this radio program is not on any stations in Oklahoma and that no one in our family would listen to it if it were, he still didn't want to come right out and say why he wanted to leave Oklahoma. 
It was to get away from family, his and my mother's. They were nosy, and they were everywhere. Every summer, itching to get away from them and Braggs, he'd drive us to the Rockies. Oh, look at the pretty mountains, Mom would say. That old faithful sure is something. My mother, my sister, and I just thought we were on vacation. Turns out Dad was scouting out an escape route. He still wanted to live in a small town. It's just that he wanted to live in a small town where he didn't know anyone. So he picked Bozeman. It was the right size, surrounded by gorgeous mountains, and best of all, had the vital statistics he was after. Vowel family four, acquaintances zero. Arriving in Bozeman at the age of 11, I felt like we had just moved to Paris. A town of culture and ideas, of libraries and movie theaters and record stores. I still celebrate the first day we got there, June 5th, as a birthday of sorts. Bozeman had miles and miles of cement for us to roller skate around on instead of the stunted 50-foot strip of sidewalk in our Bragg's backyard. My sister Amy remembers pulling into town. I remember coming over the pass and we'd been, you know, driving through the mountains or whatever. and It seemed really super huge. It was weird being around so much concrete and just organization, you know. Yeah. We were just set loose out in the world, too. We're in Oklahoma. We could wander around, but it was always, like, in the front pasture or the backwoods or walk over to our pa's house or something, you know. None of this, like, just cruise around a whole town, you know. And it kind of freaked us out. <laughs> but it was exciting, too. It was. Um. One of the things I liked about living in Bozeman was that there was a library, you know. Yeah. Remember in Bragg's, there was that, um, the whole school, there was one little, wasn't it like a shelf? That, <laughs> there was a shelf with some books on it right. for um, 12 grades of people. Yeah. And um, Bozeman had, you know, separate buildings that were libraries. Right. And um, how fun that was to just go and look at all the books we wanted. Mm-hmm. In Bozeman, I thrived, my sister blossomed, my father found his thrill. But the move was hard on my mom. She missed her epic family. The thing that made my father squirm about small-town life, being surrounded by people who know you, was exactly what she'd loved about it. Her family is huge and hilarious, with big mouths and bigger hearts. And up north, she missed her fiery southern-style church. There weren't any other Pentecostals in Bozeman, so we ended up at the most frigid, watered-down, non-denominational Protestant house of worship possible. We were used to this wrathful, angry Old Testament creator, and sitting through week after week of God is love got pretty bland. And after a few years, our church visits tapered off, which was fine by me. Mom, on the other hand, had to deal with not only her own loss of spiritual guidance and community, she had to sit by and watch her children losing Christian steam. Well, let's talk about something we generally avoid talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, do you think, well, as you know, at some point, I basically lost my faith and never got it back and do you think if we had I mean is that a regret of yours do you think if we had stayed in Oklahoma I would still be right there by your side at church with you um that's interesting Sarah because I do think about that a lot um I I used to just really think especially when I found out that you had you know, lost your faith. I thought if we would have stayed in Oklahoma, this wouldn't have happened to Sarah. And, you know, I feel really guilty and really bad that we moved to Montana and Sarah has lost this. But over the years, as I've seen you grow up and realize and know what kind of person you are, I'm wondering, even in Oklahoma, you, would you have began to 
search in different areas and and maybe doubt. Are you calling me a bad seed? Mom? No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not. I love you very much, and I'm very proud of the person you are. And uh, that's your choice, you know. Uh, but it don't keep me from uh, praying every night that you'll return to your faith, Sarah. <laughs> Amy told me, I don't remember this, but Amy said that once when we were about 13 or so, that you, when we were in Bozeman, you sat us down and you asked us if we wanted to go back to Bragg's. And um, I would assume the reason for that is that if we would have said yes, because you obviously wanted to go back, then we would have ganged up on dad or something. Do you remember that? Ah, uh, yes, I do remember that. <laughs> Were you really? How was it for you when we said we didn't want to go back? Oh, I was totally devastated. <laughs> uh, um, yes, I, I remember that very well. Um, I think you were pretty quiet, and it was really neat what Amy said to me. She said, Mama, we understand that you're very unhappy here and that you miss home and if you feel that you need to go back that's okay with Sarah and I uh, but we want to stay here and I looked at you and I said do you want to stay here Sarah and you said yes I do and so you know I mean I immediately wanted to burst into tears but I thought I need to compose myself here and <laughs> Uh, later that night, as I thought about it, I guess it was a real turning point for me, actually, to, to start being happy here in Bozeman, uh, because I thought, okay, I can't leave my children, so I better get it together. Because, and I know you really don't like to hear me say this, Sarah, because you and Amy uh, have been and are uh, the most important thing in my life. And so there's no way I could have ever gone away and left you. There's so much mother-daughter history in the way my mom says, I know you don't like hearing me say this, because she knows I don't like hearing her say that I'm the most important thing in her life sometimes because of the guilt that involves. And before I started working on this story, I'd always felt badly about the way she sacrificed her happiness for mine. I grew up believing she would have been better off in her little Oklahoma hometown, surrounded by family, embraced by the church. But I found out I was wrong. Now, do you still want to go back to Oklahoma? Oh, no. No. I, I could never live in Oklahoma again. Why not? Um, I, I really think that I've changed too much, Sarah. Uh, I mean, I love my brothers back there dearly and my best friend, Kathy, and uh, there's lots of, you know, wonderful people that I just adore and love so much back there. But I do feel that I've changed so much in the 15 years that we've lived here that I could not live in Oklahoma again. So now... Do you think then that Bragg's is just too small? Yes, I do. And when you were growing up there and when you were living your whole life there before you moved to Montana, would you ever imagine that that would be true for you? No. No. I, growing up there, I never even dreamed in, in my wildest dreams about moving away from there. I just always thought, I'll just meet someone here and get married and live the rest of my life here. Really? Yes. I guess your dream didn't come true. <laughs> <laughs> Is that okay with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, as difficult as it was moving to Bozeman the first few years and all the changes, um, it, it really, for all of us, was um, a, a, a good move. I'm sitting in the railway station Got a ticket for my destination mm. On a tour of one night stands My 
suitcase and guitar in hand And every stop is neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home Where my thoughts escaping Home Where my music's playing Home Where my love lies waiting silently Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines mm. And each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound, I wish I was Escaping home When my music's playing home When my love lies waiting Silently for me Tonight I'll sing my songs again I'll play the game And pretend mm-hmm. But all my words come back to me In shades of mediocrity Like emptiness and harmony I need someone to comfort me Homeward Bound by Simon and Garfunkel. Before that, we heard The Old Country by Sarah Val, originally broadcast on This American Life in 1997. This next story is by Carmen Delzell, an American now living in Mexico. It's morning in La Cieneguita. And the sun's coming up over the hill over there. And time to take the dogs out for their morning walk. The dogs get so excited that it's time to go for a walk. All my life, I've wanted to live on the outside of society. I'm 59 years old, and I have no money at all. I want to live as close to nature as I possibly can. Nature for me is is a, how can I say this? To say that I live out in the country in Mexico sounds romantic, but I'm also isolating out here, as they say. I'm incredibly alone and have been. Once in a while a pickup drives by, but basically I'm, uh, I'm surrounded by flowers, trees, light, chickens and birds. I ask myself every single day of my life why I'm here. Hello, little dude. Hello, little dude. Never had donkeys before. Taking them to get a drink of water. Petunia quiere más. I tell you, I'm overrun. Overrun with animals. Must be around midnight. The dogs are surprised because usually we're in bed by now, but the cricket sounded so beautiful and the stars are so bright out here because there are no street lights. For me, nature is. Um, being able to walk outside in my nightgown or even sometimes in my underwear. The fantasy of waking up to beautiful sunrises and going to bed to beautiful 
full moon risings over purple mountains. All that's real. And it really is my life. But the loneliness and the economic insecurity of it is pretty scary. At least I sound as if I'm Barbara Kingsolver writing a story about, you know, eating healthy food and canning and all that, which I'd love to, be, I would love to be like that, but I'm not. I don't have illusions about it. There's a part of me that's dying to get out of here. And yet, the things that I would have to do to go back into a normal American society are much, much harder. See, this is the crux of the matter. This is where I keep stopping and asking myself what I'm doing. Why do I, Carmen Delzell, want to live in the middle of nowhere, go out for walks in basically dry, barren, grassy meadows, uh, which the kids tell me are full of snakes? Why do I have two useless donkeys? Why do I have nine dogs? I can't picture myself living anywhere else. As far as I can see, standing right here, it's green or this kind of beautiful beige yellow of the dry grass. Is this nature? You're hearing voices on NPR. Yes, I'm ready now. Then close your eyes and tap your heels together three times. This is from the movie, The Wizard of Oz. And think to yourself, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Carmen Delzell's story aired on Stories from the Heart of the Land, a series produced by Jay Allison and Emily Botine for Atlantic Public Media supported by the Nature Conservancy and Visa. My name is Scott Carrier. We'll be back in a minute with a story about a place close to my home and my heart, the Great Salt Lake Desert. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. I'm Scott Carrier from Hearing Voices, the best of public radio. Today, playing stories about people trying to find their home or trying to figure out what it means to be home. If I drive or walk up a hill above my house in Salt Lake City, I can look to the west and see a mountain that's 110 miles away in Nevada. In between is the great Salt Lake Desert, one of the most inhospitable places on the entire planet. Mark Twain passed through in 1861 on a stagecoach, and this is how he described it. Imagine a vast, waveless ocean, stricken and dead and turned to ashes. 
Imagine this solemn waste tufted with ash-dusted sagebrushes. Imagine the lifeless silence and solitude that belong to such a place. There's not the faintest breath of air stirring. There's not a merciful shred of cloud in all the brilliant firmament. There's not a sound, not a sigh, not a whisper, not a buzz or a whir of wings or a distant pipe of a bird, not even a sob from the lost souls that doubtless people the air. On the salt flats, every shot is the same. The ball sits on a stiff white carpet of salt crystals, so you tee it up and hit the driver. The ball flies off toward the mountain and then drops and disappears into the lake. It looks like the shore of the Great Salt Lake, but it's a mirage. You walk toward the shot, and the shoreline stays 100 yards in front of you. The ball is always there, sitting on a stiff white carpet of salt crystals, so you tee it up and hit the driver. And so on for miles and miles and miles. The mountain in the distance is called Floating Island. Up high there are animals, trees, and fish. But down here, nothing. No rocks or bushes, no ditches. There are no real hazards, except for the bombing range, which is big but easy to avoid, and the mental hazard of being spooked by the emptiness. It can make you feel uncomfortable, but then it can also improve your concentration on the ball. It's obvious no one would live out here, and yet people do live out here. I'm John Conrad. Um, we're in the Eskdale community. Why did your group come to the desert? Well, one of the writings said to go into the land of the earth and, and to, to build a place in an effort to, to live together, all things common, similar to Acts 2. Um, so there's... A, in the community, no one really owns anything, but we all own it. Of course, personal items, clothes, uh, those kinds of things are, are owned by the people. But uh, cars, houses, all those things are really commonly owned. Um, well, can you tell me about the man who founded uh, this faith community? Uh, there's a fellow named Maurice Glendening. Uh, he came to Utah in the late 20s and he had received revelations from an angel. Uh, in fact, it began as a boy, he'd just hear music, and then a voice stood out in a choir. And, you know, this went on over years as he was growing up. Finally, he could hear the voice, and he wrote down what the voice was saying. Uh, and these revelations that he wrote, uh, everyone said they were demonic, which, of course, they're not. But we do believe that the Lord, through angels, through inspiration, many other means, continues to speak to people. Briefly, can you just tell me what you're, what's going to happen tonight? What is it going on tonight? Well, we're just going to uh, perform the Messiah. This is Granite Ranch. I'm Keith Allred. Um, we're, um, I guess the, the original name given to the, the people believing polygamy would be fundamentalist, but um, socially, if that was practiced and practiced in a godly manner, not after lust or to benefit man's desires or stuff like that, you wouldn't have harlotism, you wouldn't have uh, abortions, you wouldn't have society in the way you have it today in a whoremonging type, uh, lustful society. And it takes care of the widow, the orphan, it takes care of an unmarried woman, it, it, it gives a woman an opportunity that she can choose a good man not setting up any man that he's he's a better than another man or something like that, but it sets it up that uh, a woman can have a righteous head or a righteous leader. And I think if you would look through the world today, they're far and few. I mean, if you just use the ten Boy Scout rules, most men come far from reaching that. Well, my name is Cecil Garland, and I live in Calio, Utah, on the edge of the salt desert. We are in the process here in the United States, we have already, in fact, 
recreated the fall of Rome. Uh, little, little doubt can be had in that regard. We've lost control of our money. We've lost control of our borders. We've lost control of our courts. Our, our courts are travesties. And if you want justice anywhere in this country, don't expect ever to find it in the courts. They're, they are farce. They're a travesty. And, and the founding fathers of our nation who tried to create something new and different, something that would that the world could behold and, and, and cherish and keep, would come back to this country and go absolutely nuts. The first white men came to this desert in the 1820s looking for beaver and the Rio Buenaventura, the river they thought connected the Great Salt Lake with the Pacific Ocean. They came in young, on horseback. A few weeks later, they staggered out, having eaten their horses, having abandoned their friends, having forgotten their own names. Their reports were full of horrors. There are no beaver, there is no river, everywhere the water just disappears into the ground. The Indians live like animals, their houses nothing more than hovels made from little sticks, their clothes made from the same sticks, food, whatever they pick up off the ground, insects, lizards, rats, like dogs they hunt without weapons, they're all witches, they can charm animals into their camp by beating a drum and dancing. Captain Howard Stansberry of the U.S. Corps of Topographical Engineers, the first white man to walk around the Great Salt Lake, said... These Indians are the most degraded savages, and their country is entirely worthless. You know what that means? Uh, I think he said, I'm Mitch, and we're standing behind the store, and this is my brother. No, man. I said, waiting for the, waiting for the mail oh, to yeah. come in. White, white people don't not even yeah, hurry, white people said. don't hurry up, I said. <laughs> And here, the mail's already here. So, what are you going to do this afternoon? I'm going to window this afternoon. Got to cash his check and got uh, some big tits I want to go see to. Dancers? No, Dolly no. Parton. No, <laughs> girlfriend. You know Dolly Parton, don't you? I don't. I don't know. Is she in Wendover? Mm-hmm. Second Dolly Parton. So, do you guys gamble? Oh, yeah, bad. What do you mean, bad? You bet, I said. You bet, or it's... We play blackjack. Uh, and do you win or do you lose? Black. You lose every time, just like donating money. <laughs> well, why do you do it, then? Why? What's your... why? Yeah. Because we got the money and we just want to go have fun. You don't care as long as I fill up my gas tank and I end up making back home. What it, you don't care if you save your money? That I can't answer. I don't know about that. <laughs> What do you mean? You don't know about it. Well, <clears throat> we I'll tell you one thing. We go down the window just to have fun, see? If not, we just stick around here. What do you do for fun around here? Mm, look for a few. Looking for some women's, but there's nothing around here. All these girls are related to us around here, so we have to go all the way to window. Or if not window, we go all the way to Wells or Donna's. Donna's Hacienda. You know where Tucker Haney uh, Indians up uh, up above? Hey, hey Scott, I'm going to go over to the store. I'm going to take him over so he, he can cash a check, then I'll come okay. back over, huh? All right, Because, I don't know, you might have to give us a jump because my truck kind of acting up. All right, see what happens. No, 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 I'm waiting for you. In 1941 and 42, the Army and the Air Force took more than 2,000 square miles of this desert for bombing ranges and work with biological and chemical warfare. And the land changed, not just the 2,000 square miles, the whole desert. It changed from being considered worthless to being considered to have value in its worthlessness. It offered open space and absolute silence. What better place to drop bombs and spread disease and poison? 
At the Dugway Proving Grounds in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, Army and CIA personnel tested aerial and ground dispersions of nerve agent, dangerous viruses, the microbes that cause anthrax, plague, as well as the hallucinogens LSD and BZ. You may remember the nerve gas accident in 1968 that killed 6,000 sheep. By some estimates, one-third of Dugway's 1,000 square miles is contaminated and will be off-limits forever. All the tests are now done indoors under very anxious safety regulations. This is a class three glove box. Remember, there were three types of safety cabinets. This is the highest level, and it's a, you can see there are glove ports. It's totally sealed up when it's in operation, and they test it with Freon to make sure there's no leaks. This is where we do our aerosol work inside of here. So there are three layers of containment. The room is a layer of containment. The chamber is a layer of containment. And then the aerosol itself is actually inside that aerosol system, inside the Class three glove box. Inside of what? This plexiglass box, that's where the aerosol is contained. Can you run through for me? Uh, Yersinia pestis attenuated strain. Coxiella urbanetti, which causes Q fever. Bacillus subtilis variety niger, which is a simulant. MS2 colophage, which is a viral simulant that doesn't cause disease. Botulinum toxin, which causes uh, botulism. Staphylococcus enterotoxin B, which causes the food poisoning that's common from eating potato salad that's been left at room temperature. And T2 toxin. I think I got them all now. I didn't say yellow fever. Is there yellow fever here? I, I don't believe so. You don't believe so? No, I don't believe so. Cholera? Is there is real cholera? cholera? Is it, yeah, is there cholera here? How do you mean here? Is there, do we have samples of cholera in the building? That's correct. Well, how about uh, anthrax? Bacillus anthracis? Yes. It's an organism that causes a serious illness. And there is treatment. There is a vaccine for it, which appears to be very effective. And there is treatment for anthrax. But once again, we use attenuated strains when we can. And we actually have a very good simulant for anthrax. So, so we don't use anthrax all that often. So there is treatment for anthrax. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is it's safe and the public shouldn't worry. I'd recommend that you come to the Citizens Advisory Committee for Dugway testing meetings. I didn't go to the Citizens Advisory Committee meeting, but I did climb to the top of Deseret Peak, a thousand feet above Timberline. It was a clear day, just after a storm, and the air was cold like a trout stream. Snowy peaks 100 miles in the distance seemed to be within my reach. Down below I could see the smooth, sloping basin floors of alkaline mud and sagebrush. To the west, I could see lines laid out on the Dugway Valley. Some lines in a grid pattern, others in concentric circles, targets for bombing practice. To the southwest, the Rush Valley, where there are rows and rows of small concrete bunkers, like little houses in a suburban neighborhood. This is where the Army stores chemical nerve agent, enough to kill every living thing on the planet. You get just a tiny bit of this stuff on your skin or in your lungs, and pretty soon you notice some difficulty breathing, then you begin to slobber and drool. Then you urinate, defecate, and fall down on the ground and writhe about in convulsions until you go into a coma and die. The army is now building an incinerator to destroy this poison, and it's none too soon either, as the containers inside the bunkers have started to leak. To the east, I could see the Tooele Valley, home of the Tooele Army Depot, where habitual dumping of toxic and hazardous solvents has polluted a large aquifer. And beyond Twila, farther east, the Kennecott copper smelter. Kennecott has also polluted an aquifer, one that could have supplied drinking water to 50,000 people a year. To the north, I could see Magcorp, a magnesium plant, spewing a long plume of chlorine gas into the air. And to the northwest, the West Desert Hazardous Industries Area, a special 100-square-mile plot of land set aside for incinerators and landfills. This is how we use this desert. It's all planned and carried out by committees, commissions, concerned citizens, people who live and work here, 
people who want the best for their community. They didn't start the Second World War. They don't produce the hazardous waste that they burn and bury. When bad stuff happens, it has to go somewhere. So why not here to this place that we consider to be soulless, empty, and dead? Former Twila County Commissioner, now Justice of the Peace, William Pitt. I think Twila County is, is an excellent place because of the vastness of the area and the, uh, and the small population. The water is uh, so thick you could cut it with a knife. You'd never be able to, to use it for any purpose. And the uh, land is virtually useless for anything else. We went in there. It's a viable business. It's been uh, went through the scrutiny of, uh, of the EPA, the state health department. It's had op- ample opportunity for people to come in and show us where it's dangerous through public hearings. Nobody ever did. They come in with a lot of stuff, but it wasn't viable stuff. It was a lot of uh, stuff they've taken from uh, environmental issues, uh, environmental clubs, environmental societies, uh, Greenpeace, uh, that uh, this thing was a hazard to the people, but no scientific data that was approved by what government standards are. And that is what we had to go by, was government-accepted uh, standards of, uh, of the health, safety, and welfare of the people in Twilla County, state of Utah, United States. Now, the, uh, the cry of uh, the environmentalists uh, uh, throughout uh, Utah that we was making it a waste capital of the United States, uh, we are part of the United States. This is Orrin Miller. I'm a historian. We're standing at Pioneer Park. This location is situated near where the first pioneers settled in October 1849. You can see what a beautiful area it is. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Um, how old are you now? 70? 83. You're 83, okay. Have you lived here all your life? Lived here, born 198. Lived here all my life. All right. You've seen Tooele go from kind of a farming community, I guess it was some mining when you were a little kid, a right. uh, smelter up here, mm-hmm. to uh, a county that houses a lot of uh, dangerous chemicals and ammunition. And, hazardous uh, waste. Hazardous waste, bombs. Uh, there's a bombing range over there. Right. Um, it's had a, a number of, of uh, industries that have polluted the environment, right? And so, so that now there are millions of dollars being spent to clean it up. And, like, yes, and, that's, that's okay. by the military. Right. And, so, uh, what and the military is spending that money. Right. But uh, what I'm wondering is, do you regret that? Do you regret the military coming in here and turning Tooele County into that kind of a place? I mean, it must have been really beautiful and completely clean and pure back when you were a boy. That's, that's right. Except there wasn't any jobs for the young people. Huh. So we don't regret that. That Tooele was a boon to Tooele, provided jobs for our, for our youngsters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think those are good things to have? Yes, community? yes, definitely. Huh. 15,000 years ago, this desert was underwater. The Bonneville Soft Flats are the residue of an inland sea the size of Lake Michigan, 1,000 feet deep. Geologists say the lake comes and goes, and that one of these days, maybe 10,000 years from now, My house on a hillside in Salt Lake City will be beachfront property. I'll be looking forward to that. Meanwhile, we'll just go on using this desert as a national garage, our national basement. Of course, environmentalists say that's a mistake, a misuse of the land. Maybe it is, but there is one advantage to treating this place like a basement. People think it's a creepy place, and hardly anyone comes out to visit. The result is that the animals that live here, mountain lion, elk, antelope, close to 400 species of birds, they're really wild. One morning I saw a golden eagle eating a rabbit on the road going down Skull Valley. He wouldn't move from my car. I parked 20 yards away from him, and he just kept eating, tearing off muscle and viscera, throwing it back down his throat, and looking at me with an unafraid, innocent, and vicious curiosity. Where would that look go if we turned this desert into an official wilderness area and filled it with backpackers? 
My suggestion is let's turn this desert into an endless golf course for the Japanese. They're crazy about the game, but don't have room for it at home. We could rent them golf carts, sell them refreshments, and drive everyone into Wendover to party and gamble at night. Why not? Yeah, hit it! You're listening to Hearing Voices. That was Neil Young and the Blue Notes, Married Man. The story before, about the place we here in Salt Lake City call the West Desert, I produced in 1991 with help from Larry Massett and Art Silverman, but it was never broadcast nationally. I thought I'd play it now because it fits with this week's theme, No Place Like Home. And I mean that like an omen. You'll never find or have a place like home, maybe because there aren't any left, or because you'll never be able to settle down and feel comfortable. This next story is by Natalie Edwards, who moved with her family from Jamaica to Brooklyn, whereupon she realized she was afraid to go out her front door. She wasn't afraid of the people outside. She was afraid of the birds and trees and grass. I don't want to be near dirt. I just feel like everything is biting me. Oh, I'm... I'm trying. I'm trying to like nature. She decided to be brave and go for a walk in the park. So we're going to walk through the park starting now. Let's go. I used to live in Jamaica. And in Jamaica, nature was my playground. We would lay on the ground in the grass. We would climb trees to pick fruits, find all kind of worms and insects. And maybe because of our innocence, we would do, like, crazy things, like eat stuff we weren't supposed to eat, taste things we weren't supposed to taste. We ate dirt. (laughs) What is that? Didn't even look like a mosquito or a fly. It looked like a little bird. (laughs) A little black bird just came up and attacked me just now. So, nature was a playground of mine. Loved every single bit of it, all the crazy things I used to do. And all those things changed when I moved to Brooklyn. So we're walking down this path. It's concrete. It's not grass. I'm not stepping on any grass or dirt. I moved to Brooklyn from Jamaica. And what changed my mind about nature was, you know, my mom. You never know what can happen. It's my mom that instilled all these things in my mind that nature is bad. Mouse, mice, rats, to me, they're all the same. To my mom, everything carries diseases. She would, like, instill that in my brain. You would get sick. This is America. This is not Jamaica. It just all changed, you know. Butterflies are cute. Just don't, I don't want it anywhere near me. I mean, I'm okay now because there aren't many trees hovering over me. Why does nature freak me out so much? I don't know. The people around me that are here enjoying themselves right now, how can I put this? I'm not going to say they're weird because I don't think they're weird. Everyone seems happy. Everyone is enjoying all of this. And I'm not. Is there a word for a fear of nature? I know people who had phobia of animals, incense, but never nature. Nature like, oh, I'm scared to go outside because of the trees. Nah, I never heard of that. Do you think the trees and stuff after you? What do you think? (laughs) Think they're going to collapse? I don't know. Like, I don't know what kind of leaves are. You on the Maury show. They'd be like, I never heard of nobody's fear of nature. (laughs) How would you get your fear? How would you get over your Okay. So I'm just looking around, hoping that nothing will jump out these bushes and come get me. I'll use their advice, like, take it slowly. The trees are hovering over me, and this is what I don't like. 
right now I'm going to walk on the grass and I can say I'm not scared only because I have tennis shoes on and nothing's gonna crawl up my toes or try to bite me. I'm looking down because I still don't trust <laughs> the fact that I'm on the grass and I don't want anything crawling up my legs. Started with my toes, now my legs. And it's all right walking on the grass right now. Okay, now I'm going to touch the grass. It feels all right. It just, I don't know. Now my hand is dirty. Ooh, now we're off the grass. Yay! I would clap, but I don't want the dirt from my right hand to go on my left hand because I touched the grass and the grass was dirty. I really do want to like start liking nature. I want to like nature. I want to feel what everyone else is feeling when they come to the park. But what I really want to do right now is go home and take a shower. That was This Ain't No Walk in the Park by Natalie Edwards with help from Ann Hepperman. It was part of Stories from the Heart of the Land from Atlantic Public Media, supported by the Nature Conservancy. I used to be afraid of trees, but it was the roots, not the branches, that scared me. I knew they were down there in the dark, clinging to the earth, unable and unwilling to move. It seemed desperate, a last resort. But now I'm older, and I got my own roots, and it turns out they're not so bad after all. This is Talking Heads. This must be the place. I'm Scott Carrier. There's more stories from the heart of the land at Atlantic.org. And we have links to all the producers you heard this hour at HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com. <laughs>